Father God, would you please now speak through my words and would you speak to our hearts and our minds and would you fill us with your love. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, it seems a really weird passage talking about food and what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. But actually, I'd like to title this Learning How to Disagree Graciously. Um, It's one of those passages, when you first read it, you think, what on earth is going on? And then you suddenly realize there is an awful lot here for us. The issue that was tearing the Roman church apart at the time was the question of special days and food. There were some Christians, probably from a Jewish Christian background, who were vegetarian. That wasn't a decision on health grounds. It wasn't a decision because of inhumane treatment of animals. It was a decision made because most meat sold in the market had been slaughtered in pagan temples and therefore had probably been dedicated to pagan gods. And so many people felt they couldn't eat it. And these Jewish Christians also wanted to keep special Jewish days. They said Jesus is the Messiah who came to fulfill the law. So all those special days that we had as Jews, the fast days and the feast days and the Sabbath are still special and we want to observe them. And then on the other side were the Christians, probably from a Gentile background. They argued, first of all, that Jesus had declared all food to be clean. They argued that Jesus had power over all demons and you have nothing to fear if meat has been offered to demons. So they ate meat and they argued that now that Jesus has risen from the dead, all days are sacred to God. All days are Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the coming of God to earth. All days are Good Friday when we celebrate the death of Jesus. All days are Easter Sunday, are Easter and Sunday when we celebrate his rising from the dead. Why make one day more special than the other? Now, it might seem nothing to us, but for the people involved, it was hot stuff. On the one hand, you had people who were saying, how could someone who eats meat that has been dedicated to a demon possibly be a Christian? How can someone who clearly disrespects the Sabbath be a true follower of the Messiah? How can I have fellowship with them? And on the other side, you had people who were saying, how can someone who is so bound up by the law be a real spirit-filled Christian? They need all that stuff in their faith. They're so weak in faith. We'll form the strong in faith, freedom in Christ, church. Sound familiar? Those may not be our specific issues, but there are so many others. How should one behave on Sunday? What style of worship? What choice of music? What use of liturgy? What ways of how do we understand the Bible? I haven't even touched on the big one, gay marriage. Now those verses don't particularly answer the issue, but they do help us think through how we disagree. 
So how does Paul help these believers? How does he help us to disagree with each other graciously? Well, first of all, Paul challenges us to accept each other. Paul has been speaking about love. In his previous chapter, verse 8, he's written, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love, he says, does no wrong to a neighbor. Now, in chapter 14, he's applying it to the church. His argument is this, since God has accepted you, and since God has accepted them, you need to accept each other. Accept those whose weakest faith, he says, those to who are strong in faith. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1. Accept them because God has accepted them. We need to hear this. There are often times when we can be less welcoming and more judgmental and condemning of fellow Christians than we are of people of no faith. And yet we have so much more in common with them. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to be coming to communion. We're going to come, and as we stand and receive the bread and wine, we're saying, God, I am nothing. I am broken. I am completely in need of you. I am coming to receive you by faith. And you can't then, in the next moment, say, but I'm better than the person behind me, or I'm better than the person in front of me, or they shouldn't be here. You can't do it. We've got too much in common. And when he says accept, he's not just saying grudgingly acknowledge them. He's not just saying don't judge or criticize them. He's not just saying let them get on with what they are doing and you do your own thing. It's better translated as welcome. Welcome them. Delight in them. Be pleased to associate with them. Invite them into your homes and families and lives. Recognize them as your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Realize that when Jesus died and rose again, he died and rose again for you and for them. Verse 9. Recognize that you are part of one body with them, that you need them and they need you. Your destiny and your glory is tied up with their destiny and their glory. That has practical implications. It means for the people in our reading that the strong in faith need to compromise for the sake of the weak in faith. If eating meat hurts them, then even though you're free to eat meat, you don't eat meat. And for us, well, I find it very hard to think of specific illustrations without making people think that I'm having a go at them, so I won't. But what I am saying is that because we are called to accept each other, we have to be willing to compromise some of our most cherished convictions for the sake of love. And when we do compromise, we do it with a willing heart. We still necessarily won't like what we're doing. We may even feel that it is actually wrong. But what we are saying is, that it, what we're saying is this to the other person. You matter more to me than my opinion on this particular subject. 
Paul urges us to accept each other. Secondly, Paul reminds us that we are servants of God, each of us. In verse 4, Paul writes, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master they stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And if he goes on, and he goes on to say that because Jesus died and rose again for us, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. That's the challenge to us. Yes, we are called beloved children of God. Yes, we are called friends of God. But we do also need to remind ourselves that we are called to be servants of God. In one pretty stark story, Jesus talks of the servant who has been working in the field all day. When he comes in, Jesus says, there's still work to be done. He needs to get himself ready and serve his master. And can he expect to receive thanks for what he has done? No, says Jesus. All he can say is that he is an unworthy servant who is doing his duty. So when we come to argue about issues with others who profess that Jesus is Lord, issues to do with church practice or church building or style of worship or sexuality, yes, or politics, we need to remind ourselves that we are first servants of God and they are servants of God and we're called to treat the other if they profess to follow Jesus as Lord, as fellow servants of God. And we need to remind ourselves that because we are servants of God, it's not about me about my autonomy, my rights, my aesthetic preferences, my status, my interests. So often our arguments are not about what the Bible teaches or about what is best for mission or what is most pleasing to God. We claim that they are, but what they are really about is me, what I prefer or what I want or what's in my interests or the interests of my group. The people who I most respect and who carry the most authority are those who find themselves arguing for things that are not in their natural self-interest. It might be the person arguing for the rights of a group that stands in direct opposition to them. The Christian who advocates the right of the atheists to stand up and make their statements or the rights of Muslims in this country. The person who has a homosexual tendency, who argues for a celibate lifestyle. The person who loves the Book of Common Prayer, but who argues for contemporary worship, or vice versa. The person with wealth arguing for higher taxes, or the person on benefits who argues for benefit cuts. The person who has a dreadful and painful terminal illness, arguing against euthanasia. I'm not saying that makes them right, but I am saying that they've begun to realize that it's not about them. And as Christians, they've begun to realize that they are first and foremost servants of God. And thirdly, Paul reminds us that it is God who will judge. It is so easy to pass judgment on another 
They're not spirit-filled. They don't have the full gospel. They're not word-centered. They're liturgical. They're Catholic. Within the Anglican communion, there are slurs like they're high church, they're low church, they're happy-clappy. There's a story of the minister who said, there are only two proper Christians in my church, and I'm not even convinced about my wife. But Paul challenges us. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. We will all give an account of ourselves to the Lord. Of course, we will have our own convictions of what is right and wrong in the Christian life. That is good And that is right. But please, my dear friends, be very, very, very cautious before passing judgment on another Christian, on their standing before the Lord, on their work for the Lord, on their obedience or disobedience. We are standing on very, very shaky ground. We're standing on holy ground. At least first, take your shoes off. There is, as C.S. Lewis said, a spiritual responsibility at times to mind your own business. Please don't get me wrong in all of this. Of course there will be difference of opinion or practice. At times those differences will be quite significant. The differences in Rome were pretty significant. We may hold passionately to some views and believe they are true. I note that Paul here speaks of people being fully convinced in their own mind that what they are doing, they are doing for the Lord. And of course, there will be times when we need to exercise discipline within the church. There were times when Paul seriously challenged the more legalistic Christians, especially when they began to say that a person had to be circumcised, had to keep the Sabbath, had to eat certain laws. They were, he said, preaching another gospel, another good news. That was no good news. What I am saying is that when it comes to issues that are not directly related to who Jesus is, fully God, fully human, the Son of God come down to live among us, and when it comes to issues that are not about how we can be saved through faith in Christ alone, We need to exercise caution, certainly when passing judgment on other believers. As someone said, it's tough to praise God if you're busy passing judgment on other people. And we need to allow welcoming love to trump some of our other convictions. I'm going to stray into territory that I don't normally go into, but I have to say that this is one of the reasons why I am a convinced Anglican Church of England, Christian. I wish to be part of a church which takes its stand on the Bible and on the historic creeds of the church, which tries to maintain a link with the practices and worship of the church of the past, of the last 2,000 years, without slavishly following that past, but which also seeks to embrace and include as many people of as many shades of Christianity with the arms of its fellowship that it can. 
Of course, that means there are many in the communion with whom I profoundly disagree. And there may be one or two people out there who may disagree with me. <laughs> but while we profess the historic creeds, and while we call Jesus Lord, and while we seek to live as servants of God, we try to work together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship God and build the kingdom of God. Of course we will disagree. But in our disagreement, we need to allow welcoming love to trump our differences. We need to live as servants of God, doing what we do for the Lord and giving thanks for his mercy. And we need to remind ourselves that it's not our duty to judge our Christian brother and sister. That is God's business. We need to remember that one day we will stand before God and he is the God who loves us. He is the God who gave, as we read in this passage, his son and he died for us and rose from us. This is the God who has walked in our shoes, quite literally. He knows what it's like. And this is the God who this passage says will judge us but will judge us because he longs for us to stand before him. May God help us to disagree graciously with each other. Amen.